2: Zumo Play. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm
3: Julie Douglas.
1: Julie, two questions. First of all, should humans love their technology? That's the first question. Second Mm -hmm. question: Should technology love humans?
3: Okay. Um, I'm going to say yes and yes, because I think that you can't stop love in any form, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that we, and I think we'll we'll maybe make this case today. I don't know. Or we'll just muddle the whole concept of love. But I do think that we can't help but to to love our technology and be attached to it. And eventually that will become this idea that robots will be programmed to love us because we just love love
1: well that that sounds sweet, but I th- think you can stop love. I think love is a very stoppable force,
3: I think it's a virus,
1: yeah, it persists. viruses are stoppable, some of them, so it, it we have the ability to to stop some forms of love in their tracks, because the first thing we need to discuss is, of course, the nature of love. What is love? Okay. Because love is a, is just a, a word, like love is a big tent that encompasses a lot of things. Uh, I mean, because, you know, obviously there's the love one feels for one's wife, there's the love one feels for one's child, there's the love one feels for a, like a really good sandwich, and these are vastly different uh, emotional states.
3: Oh, yeah. I think that uh, Aristotle had a a sandwich love category. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. You can kill a love for a sandwich if you just say, oh, well, that actually that sandwich isn't very good for you, or those ingredients are really foul, or that restaurant uh, got a really crippling uh, health rating, Uh, and then you might be, oh, well, maybe I don't love this sandwich as much. Anymore. Or you could
3: overindulge in the sandwich.
1: Yeah, whereas yeah. it's harder to kill the love, say, for uh, you know for a spouse or a child or something. If you, just because someone says, well, that kid's hair is a little weird, you're not going to be like, oh, well, okay, love removed. Generally, generally speaking. Sometimes that Depends on that how happens. bad the hair is. Yeah.
3: Um, did you know that what is love was the most searched phrase on Google in 2012? Really? Yeah, people want to know. Were
1: they looking for that song? Isn't that the, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. That song?
3: No, what? Keep singing.
1: Baby, don't hurt me. Mm-hmm. That's all I know.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I don't think it was that song. Okay. But I'm glad that we got to get you to. Sing that might that. have
1: been like 25 percent of the searches were just looking for those lyrics.
3: Right? It's possible. It's possible. But um, well, this this uh, idea that people are searching for the meaning of love mm-hmm. had one Guardian article called "What Is Love?" Uh, Talked to several different experts about their take on love, which was sort of interesting. Because, again, here's this big, huge concept that has so many different meanings and so many different categories. And it's to the point where the word
1: itself tends to lose meaning, you know? Like when someone says, oh, I love something, it, it, it almost is a pointless thing to say because it's such an overused word that it we, we've just stripped it of all its power.
3: That is true. I was just thinking that with my daughter, I, I don't like her to say the word hate. Yeah. I oftentimes will say, do you truly hate that? You know, do you, is it just that you dislike it? Because it, that's a, that's a, a word that's word, yeah. very strong. But I never say, do you really love that? Are you <laughs> sure you love that? Uh, because there's so much positivity associated with it. Uh, theoretical physicist and science writer Jim Al-Khalil had said that while lust is a temporary passionate sexual desire involving the increased release of chemicals like testosterone and estrogen, he says that in true love or attachment and bonding, the brain can release a whole set of chemicals, pheromones, dopamine, norepinephrine, uh, serotonin, oxytocin, and vasopressin. So he says from an evolutionary perspective, love can be viewed as a survival tool, a mechanism that we evolve to promote long-term relationships, mutual defense, and parental support of children, and to promote feelings of safe- safety and security. Yeah,
1: so That's basically a chemical bond to things that enable us to better perform our genetic mission as organisms. There are several different versions of love that are laid out in this uh, this particular article. For instance, there's philia, uh the deep non-sexual intimacy between close friends or family members or soldiers in the trench, you know? It's uh it, it's this this bond of love that's uh, you know, not sexual, not romantic, but it's it's you know, it's your 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 bros kind of, you know? Kind of bro love, bras, I guess. bras, bra love. I guess. Okay. Yeah. Then there's uh, there's ludus, playful affection ba- found in fooling around or flirting. Now this one is, I guess, a, a little harder to like nail. Down. I mean, I guess I can think of, of some past examples of that. You know, where you're kind of like flirty with somebody, but you're not really going after them per se. You know.
3: But it doesn't seem to be much to that one, right? Because that's such an ephemeral state. Yeah, of it's flirting. kind of like
1: like that one's just like. I mean, that one can be killed by, like, sobering up a bit, I think. You yeah, know, like, yeah. that's not... It's barely love. It, it seems a little cheap to even classify it as a form of love. Doesn't it? Yeah. Then there's uh, pragma, the, uh, the mature love that develops over a long period of time between long-term couples, uh, and this and this is really, you know, when people talk about all that deep love that grows mm-hmm. out of a relationship, because a relationship may, be, may begin with lust or even this ludus thing we're talking about, or it may begin with philia. but... Over time it develops into this strong bond this bond where it's it's built over time and in a way that, that just can't be uh, you know pulled off a shelf and it involves just a, a lot of goodwill towards another person. It's like wanting the best for someone regardless of the cost.
3: So you might not have a huge surge in dopamine or vasopressin or, um, or even oxytocin, but it's there it's still at the you know from from a chemical level it's still sort of running behind the scenes.
1: Uh, then there's agape, uh, the more generalized love that uh, uh, I remember hearing a lot about in church. That's kind of like this sort of universal love, love everybody, love your neighbor, right? Even if it doesn't seem practical, uh, it, it's just kind of an idealized, good-natured, be cool with everyone. Which uh, you know, this is a good good way to look at the world if you can if you can do it.
3: Yeah, it's kind of the '70s love hug.
1: Then there is self-love or philatia, which. Uh, is, uh, is maybe not as selfish as it sounds. And, and to be
3: clear, we're not talking about self love in the sexual context either.
1: No, 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 no. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this just means, uh, I mean, you can break it down to the fact that if you're gonna care about others, you need to be able to care about yourself. And then there's, of course, uh, eros, uh, sexual passion and desire, uh, and, you know, and this is, again, when people talk about love at first sight in terms of a uh, male-female romantic relationship, this is often what they're actually talking about, I believe. You know, they're, they're talking about eros. They're talking about lust and physical attraction, sexual attraction, uh, that may, again, eventually morph into some other form of love or just fall off entirely.
3: Yeah, that's what I feel It should be asterisk. Like, yeah. it's not really a form of love unless it becomes philia or pragma. Yeah. Or some other type of love.
1: Yeah, it's more like a pre-love secretion or something i don't know depends how you want to secretion think. yeah okay yeah. because again we're talking a lot about about hormones flowing about about you know your hormonal response to a potential mate your hormonal response to um, you know an, an infant a child uh you know some sort of offspring there's there's a lot of secreting going along there
3: is a lot of secreting and you can't really secrete all of those for just one person right all those right. different types of love i mean Perhaps there's that one rare person in your life that can take on all of those roles of love, but most likely your family, your friends, your community take on all those different aspects of it.
1: Yeah. Uh, in this article, they also talk to a philosopher. Yes. He talked about love as a passionate commitment, which really kind of flows in with the uh, with the pragma we were talking about.
3: Yeah, it says that we have to, uh, this is from Julian Baghini, the philosopher, who said that we need to nurture and develop it even though it usually arrives in our lives unbidden. Yeah. So, you take this idea uh, of what love could be, and then you begin to think about how we love objects or things. And I started to think about this idea of apophenia. Now, apophenia is, um, this sort of unmotivated seeing of a connection and a specific feeling of abnormal meaningfulness that we ascribe to an object. And this was defined by German neurologist and psychologist Klaus Conrad. So that means when you look at an inanimate object and you see what looks like a pair of eyes and a nose and a mouth, you're unconsciously trying to make sense of the data in front of you. And you're ascribing it with something that is not what it actually is, right? But it's our human context that we're bringing with us all the time. So we can't help to sort of project those humanness feelings onto something.
1: Yeah, and uh, as you've brought up before, the we have this surprising ability to see faces. Like you really, you don't have to put a smiley face even on something to give it this sense of person. And give it, I mean, we can we we glimpse faces in the clouds. We glimpse faces yeah. on the moon, and it's all just kind of this, uh, you know, this atavistic uh, resonance where our pattern-seeking brains are looking for things that affect us. And what would affect us more than peering into the night and seeing the face of man or beast, uh, you know, lurching there in the dark? That would be some vital information you need to know because friend or foe is, r- is right upon you.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, Sonja Windhager, she's an anthropologist at the University of Vienna, said in an interview with Life Science that this tendency would have likely protected our ancestors. And she said taking a bear for a stone might be lethal, uh, but the opposite does no harm.
1: Yeah, you get down to that whole thing, of that whole situation of type 1 and type 2 errors. You know, one error means that, oh, you got me, you're not actually a bear trying to eat me. And the other error is... Um, Oh, you're actually a bear and you just devoured me. So which one, obviously, does evolution end up selecting?
3: Yeah, what's the error that you're gonna have? And so then you have this apophenia, this, you know, pattern recognition, seeing patterns everywhere, and you meld that together with anthropomorphism, and that's giving human characteristics to animals and inanimate objects, and you begin to see that as humans we are going to maybe shovel off some of our emotions Onto these objects, and I wanted to bring up this study that Winhager and her colleagues uh, conducted. This this tendency for us to actually personify cars. Now, she conducted this this study in Austria, which I've never
1: understood. Uh, uh, you know, it happens all the time, especially in TV shows where someone's got a car and it's got this this lady's name,
3: Night Rider.
1: Well, but that was what well, Kit I think was. The yes, car. that that car actually talked and had personality and uh, and they loved each other but
3: it's that that's the fantasy of the relationship that some people want to have with their cars
1: i guess it comes off kind of cre- creepy though sometimes cuz it's like it's what like a dude mean, talking Michael? about his car and his fancy car has like a lady's name and it's like there's an implied relationship there that's kind of weird doo-doo, 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 yeah. doo-doo,
3: doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. All right, so, I mean, yeah, people do have relationships with their their cars. My daughter loves our car, and she kisses it. It's very odd.
1: Does it have a name, though? Yeah. What?
3: Lightning McQueen. Lightning McQueen. (laughs) From the movie Cars, which probably has something to do with it, right? Actually, that whole movie is that that animation is a great example of anthropomorphizing something.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, totally.
3: Um, all right, so Winhager's study in Austria, she reported in 2008 that people attribute human traits to vehicles based on factors such as the shape of the headlights and the size of the windshield.
1: Yeah, because those are eyes, right. obviously.
3: eyes, you've got the mouth there with the grill. Mm-hmm. She then took the study to rural Ethiopia where there would be less of a context, right, right. For, for some of the ways that we operate in in terms of car commercials and all, all that sorts of stuff. And uh, she found out that uh, 89 Ethiopians who compared 49 renderings of cars along with 19 different human traits, including gender, also saw the cars in a very human way. And cars with slit-like, wide-set headlights were judged as male, adult, and dominant <laughs> by both Austrians and Ethiopians, as were cars with smaller windshields. And wider faces and smaller eyes and foreheads, again, the foreheads, the uh-huh. equivalent to the car windshield, were considered to be more masculine features and human faces. So they found that the cars that were considered childlike were also considered more feminine. And uh, this included closer set headlights and larger windshields. Huh. So it, it, interesting to see these two different cultures both ascribing human qualities to this. So yeah, there's, there's all sorts of weird, emotional landscape here yeah. wrapped up. And
1: and dehumanization and anthropomorphism, I mean, those are really it's the same movement in different directions. Yeah. I am either adding personhood to something that is not a person or mm-hmm. am I t- taking personhood away from something that is uh, is a person or to some degree is a person.
3: And then there's the whole personhood thing. In the yeah, yeah, so we we've, we've covered, covered in, covered, our, in an yeah. episode. Alright, let's take a break and when we get back we will talk about Loving Robots.
2: Zumo Play.
3: All right, All right. Hey. hey, we're back.
1: back. We're talking about anthropomorphism, uh, personification. We're taking objects and we're making them worthy of concern, protection. Punishment, reward. Um, we can, as humans, we have this innate ability to personify anything: mm-hmm. a pencil, a computer, a coffee table. We, you know, we we get mad at a computer that's misbehaving on us. We start uh, shouting at it, calling it names. Uh, I stub my toe on a coffee table, and I treat the coffee table like it's an enemy. Like I want to attack it, it for attacking me.
3: It is. <laughs> Many coffee tables are the enemy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and if you look at that car study. It, then you can easily extrapolate that, that you know, us, us humans connecting with robots would just be a logical conclusion, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. But, yeah, we, but we're getting into this age where we are using robots. I mean, already I have a robot vacuum cleaner in my house. You know, and uh, and and there are robot lawn mowers. We're looking at a future where robots will help care for our elderly. They're going to be in our hospitals. They're going to be on our streets, and we're going to be interacting with them all the time. So the same model applies. We we don't need to become more like robots to interact with the robots that care for us and 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 do all these tasks. We want the robots to at least meet us halfway.
3: Well, and Meeting us Halfway, I'm glad you brought that up, because it reminded me of an episode that we did called Living with Robots, in which we talked about the Lyric Project. And in the Lyric Project, they had something called the Robot House.
1: Robot House. Not to be confused with Robot House from Futurama, which was a robot fraternity. Uh right on mars
3: and this is not also a new reality show by the way at least not yet
1: oh it would be great they should do it
3: but yeah 5 weeks in the robot house some some study participants took uh Their place in this house and what they tried to figure out in this domestic setting is how annoyed would humans get when robots were programmed to sort of, you know, get in their space or not hand them something in the time that they expected the the human expected the robot to hand them something.
1: Yeah, well, one great example is when we came back from our break, we both spoke at the same time. And our typical response is, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, you go first. And you're like, oh, no, no, you go first. Yeah. You, you finish.
3: But, I did try to match you there for a bit.
1: <laughs> but with a robot, uh, one of the examples that I often pointed out, like say you and a robot reach for the same object at the same time. Now, th- when humans do this, the typical response is going to be, oh, I'm sorry, you were reaching for that, you go ahead. You go ahead and have some of those snacks, I'll hold off. And then the other person will say, no, 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 you do it. Now, the robot, is the robot going to have any kind of programming that allows... F- for that kind of consideration, or is the robot simply going to grab the snacks, and then the human, not realizing, and, and you know, certainly the human is anthropomorphizing. They're mm-hmm. they're uh, they're regarding this machine as some sort of a, a human entity to some degree. How are they going to react? They're going to think, oh, well, that stinky robot trying to get these snacks before I can have some. That's totally rude. So how do you you have to start thinking of ways to program the robot to behave in a human. Capacity and even these small uh, little interactions, just to avoid sort of subliminal uh, hostility uh, blossoming up.
3: Yeah, because what they found in this study is that people did start to think that the robots were doing things on purpose, mm-hmm. and and really starting to get angry with them. And this is not just a crazy one-off experiment. This really this this field of uh, human robotics interaction. Uh, is something that's only like a decade old but the reason it's there is because it is forthcoming and yeah. you know you do want some
0: okay picture this it's
2: Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road with available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating my whole family can head deep into the
0: wild conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really.